you haven't done so already, you can open your Bibles to that text. Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. And as Sam reminded us, this is the, the continuation of a, of a story which we began last Sunday. Remember, in the, the second half of chapter 6, we saw that uh, this newly ordained leader in the church, he'd actually been uh, elected and ordained in the first half of chapter 6, this, this newly elected minister of the gospel, this, this newly elected leader in the church is, is now in Jerusalem preaching the gospel. He's, he's not an apostle, but he's, but he's preaching the apostolic gospel, the, the good news of Jesus Christ risen uh, and, and now uh, Savior of his people. And by preaching that gospel, we learn that, that he provoked the, uh, the opposition of, of certain synagogue members, the members of uh, the synagogue of the freedmen, men from Cyrenia, Alexandria, Cilicia, and Asia. They, they opposed him. They, they objected to his preaching. But when they tried to debate with him, they could not withstand the, the spirit-wrought wisdom with which he spoke and with which he proclaimed Christ. And so Luke tells us that these members of the synagogue secretly instigated, which, which probably means they paid, they paid for false witnesses to accuse Stephen and have him arrested. And these false witnesses levied basically two charges against Stephen. We, we see them stated, first of all, in uh, verse 11. Look back there with me. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, they said. He's, he's blaspheming Moses and God. That's the, the charge that they are bringing, the charges that they are bringing. They, and they repeat these same charges in verses 13 and 14, this time before the council uh, that had had Stephen arrested. This man, they said, never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that's referring to the temple, and will change the customs of Moses delivered to us. He's speaking against God and against Moses. He's, he's speaking against the temple and against the law. That is the, the charge that they are bringing against Stephen. And I say that these are basically the same charges because the, the charge that he speaks against the temple corresponds to the, to the idea that he speaks against God. To speak against the temple in the minds of the Jews was to speak against God because the temple was the place where God dwelt with his people. If the temple was going to be destroyed, in their minds, that meant one of two things. It meant either that, that God was going to abandon his people, or that God was going to be overpowered by someone else and have his people taken away from him. And both of those ideas to the, to the Jew were blasphemous. And so therefore, to speak against the temple was to speak against God. And similarly, to speak against the law was obviously to speak against Moses. For the law had come to the people through Moses when, when he met with God at Mount Sinai. And so we have two basic charges that are, that are being brought against Stephen. It was being alleged that by preaching Jesus, by preaching Jesus as the Christ, Stephen was preaching against the law and the temple. And it is these two charges that the high priest is referring to in verse 1 when he asks, are these things so? 
He's asking him about the false charges that had been brought against him. And so when we, when we read this speech, which actually takes up the, the bulk of chapter 7, it's the longest speech in Acts, when we read this speech, we, we may assume that Stephen is answering these charges because it's what he is asked about at the very beginning. And if length is any indication... This is a, an answer that Luke considers to be very important to the life of the church because he records it at length. However, when we read this speech today, it's not always easy for us to understand either its significance or its point. We're not quite sure why Luke gives so much space to this speech, and we're not quite sure what point Stephen seems to be making. Many, including many so-called scholars, you can see this in the, the commentaries, they, they see this speech as a mostly irrelevant recitation of well-known history that fails to make any point whatsoever. <laughs> They're like, what is he doing? He's like giving them a Sunday school lesson about things they already know, and then he calls them some names at the end, and they end up killing him. And, and it's hard for people to see what this speech is really all about. Maybe you've felt that way yourself. Maybe you've, you've felt that way as you've read through the book of Acts. This, this speech isn't like the other speeches in Ask, Acts. Uh, Jesus isn't even mentioned by name. The resurrection isn't referred to. There's, there's no explicit call to repentance. At first glance, this, this speech doesn't seem to have for us, as the church today, what the other speeches do. If you've ever felt that way, I understand, but I hope to show you over the, the course of this morning and the next few Sundays that that isn't the case at all. On the contrary, not only does Stephen answer the charges against him, but he actually begins to bring his own charges against the Jewish leaders who have arrested him. Charges that will ultimately explain why, at this point, the gospel is about to overflow from Jerusalem and Judea into Samaria and begin to go even to the ends of the earth. And so let's look at this speech more closely. It actually divides up into three or four parts, actually, four parts. First, you have uh, Stephen's recount of the call of Abraham. You, you see that in the first paragraph. Then we have the story of Joseph in the next paragraph. Then we have actually three paragraphs about Moses. And then finally, we, we have, he turns to the story of the tabernacle and the, the temple and the history of Jesus after, in uh, the, the history of Israel after uh, the, uh, Moses. And so we're going to look at these in, in order, and it's going to take us three Sundays at least to, to do it. We're going to start this morning with Abraham and Joseph, with the, the time of the patriarchs. The next Sunday we'll look at Moses, and then uh, in two weeks we will look at the, the final paragraph about the tabernacle and the temple. So let's begin this morning with the call of Abraham. But, but before we look at that specifically, notice how Stephen begins. He says, brothers and fathers. He, he addresses them respectfully, and when he refers to Abraham, he refers to him as our father. When he refers to God, he, he refers to him as the God of glory, indicating that he recognizes that the God whom the council uh, confesses with their lips is the one true living God. He is the God of glory. And so Stephen begins by identifying with the Jewish leaders. He is one of them in, a, in some respect. Now, by the end of the speech, Stephen will make it clear that these Jewish leaders are uncircumcised in heart. He will make it clear that they are stiff-necked and always resistant to the Holy Spirit. 
But here at the beginning, he identifies with them in order to demonstrate that he is in no way renouncing or degrading his Jewishness. He knows that he is a Jew, and he loves his heritage, and he claims it proudly. In fact, he wants the Jewish leaders to know that it is because he is proudly a Jew that he cannot but preach Christ. It's it's why he preaches Jesus so powerfully. And in fact, that in itself is the point of the whole speech. What Stephen is saying throughout this whole speech is that I preach Jesus because I'm a Jew. I preach Jesus because I'm an Israelite. I preach Jesus because he is the fulfillment of all that was ever promised to the people of God in the Old Testament. I'm not renouncing my Jewishness by by turning to Jesus. I am claiming it. It is actually you who are missing the point. It is you who are renouncing your heritage by renouncing and rejecting the one whom God has given in fulfillment of all of his promises. Stephen is not the one blaspheming God or or Moses. He's not calling the people to something new. He's, He's not trying to establish a new religion, not at all. He is proclaiming Jesus because Jesus is the yes and amen of all of God's promises. That's exactly why he begins with Abraham, the the forefather, the founder of the faith. But but notice specifically what he says to us about Abraham. First, he says that God appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And here I just need to pause for just a second to to do a a slight aside, because this is the first of what uh, are are actually several potential conflicts in the text. There there are several places where where commentators say, well, Stephen and and Genesis don't seem to agree. Stephen seems to be getting his his history wrong. And it's going to come up uh, uh, several times throughout this speech, both this Sunday and uh, in in, uh, the Sundays to come. And I want you to know, I'm aware of that. I'm just not going to talk about it in the sermon. Right? If, you have, if you have concerns about that, if you have an interest in that, get a commentary, get a good study Bible, read up on it. Uh, you, there, are, there are answers out there, and if you still want to talk about it, I would be happy to meet with you. I'm just not going to talk about it this morning, so that's enough of that. All right, so, so we're not going to focus on the differences, but rather I want us to focus on the point that Stephen is making. All right? What's the point? What is, why does Stephen bring this up? Why is it significant that God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia? Well, it's significant because it shows that God's presence with his people, God's presence with his people never required the temple. And it was certainly never limited by the temple. God appeared to Abraham, not in the promised land, but in Mesopotamia, in Ur of the Chaldeans. As we saw last Sunday, the the temple is the the symbol of God's presence with his people. But as even we read in the Old Testament itself, God is not a God who dwells in temples made by hands. He doesn't need us to build him a house in order for him to dwell with us. That That was never true in the Old Testament. It's certainly not true now in the New God's presence was was never even limited to the land. Not only did he not need the temple, he didn't need to be in the land. God dwelt with Abraham 
in Mesopotamia. He met him there. And was, we'll see a little bit later. He, he met with Joseph and he was with Joseph in Egypt and he was with Moses in, in Midian. God's presence with his people was never limited to the temple and it was never even limited to the land. And that's the point that Stephen is, is driving home here. And by recounting this, by, by, by recounting this history, he is actually putting the question to the council. He is subtly asking, so who is it that's really blaspheming God here? Who is it that's, that's really speaking against God? Is it the one who says that the temple is absolutely necessary for him to be present with his people? Or is it the one who sees the temple as a symbol of God's promise? A promise now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Which blasphemes the name of God? To, to say that he needs a, a, a house built by human hands? Or to say that that house was merely a promise that he would dwell with his people? That's the question that, that uh, Stephen is, is posing. So he's not only defending himself against the charges, he's actually bringing charges of his own. He's, he's going on the offensive against the unbelief of the Jewish leaders. And we see something similar in the second thing that Stephen says about Abraham. Look again at verse 5. Stephen says, yet he gave him, that is he gave Abraham, no inheritance in it. No inheritance in the promised land, not even a foot's length. But promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. In fact, he, he told Abraham that his children would, would actually dwell in some other land as slaves for 400 years before they were brought into the promised land. That's the word of God to Abraham. And so it's clear that the, the land was promised to Abraham, but it was going to be given to his offspring. Abraham himself would never possess even a foot's length. And think about what that means. That, that, that matters. It's significant because it tells us that this covenant of circumcision, this covenant of circumcision, which... By the way, the, the Jews considered to be a precursor to the law of Moses. All right, so, the, so circumcision wasn't given through Moses, but it was still a symbol of the Mosaic law. Circumcision was a work of the law in Jewish eyes. And so this covenant of circumcision, which was a precursor to the law, was a forward-looking covenant. It was an anticipatory covenant. It was a promise. The full fulfillment yet to come. And again, by pointing this out, by, by pointing out that, the, that the, even the law always pointed forward, it again put the question to the Jewish leaders. They claim that he is blaspheming Moses by speaking against the law, when in fact, he is merely proclaiming the fulfillment of what was always, from the beginning, understood to be a sign pointing forward to something else. So it is actually those who are rejecting the fulfillment who are rejecting the law, not those who are proclaiming it. That's the point that Stephen is making. To, to proclaim the fulfillment of a promise is not to reject the promise, but it is rather to honor the promise as the promise that it always was. And so again, that by going back to Abraham's story, Stephen not only begins to answer the, the two charges that are brought against him, the two charges that are brought against the apostolic gospel, but he actually is beginning to build his case against the authorities who have rejected Jesus. 
They claim to be loyal to the temple. They claim to be loyal to the law. But by rejecting Jesus, they are neither. On the contrary, by rejecting Jesus, they were in fact rejecting both the temple and the law, for both the temple and the law were signs pointing to Jesus. That's the point. That's what Stephen is getting at. And there is a a vital lesson there for the church today. About 12 years ago, Michael Horton wrote a book titled Christless Christianity. It's, It's quite a title, Christless Christianity. And as the name implies, in that book, Horton argues that the the person, and and particularly the the work of Jesus Christ, is glaringly absent from many contemporary expressions of evangelical Christianity. Christians have powerful worship, he says. They they know how to get together. They know how to sing. They they know how to stir the emotions. They They have powerful worship. But the focus is not always on Jesus. Jesus who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised again for our justification. In fact, confession of sin and and assurance of of pardon is is missing entirely for much contemporary worship. Instead, the focus is on how great it is to have the Almighty God, the Creator of heaven and earth, to have Him for us. Now, now don't misunderstand me here. We we, we enter into worship every Sunday confessing that the, the Maker of heaven and earth is our help. It is good to have God for us. It is is good that that He is our shelter. It is good that He is our refuge. It is good that He is our our Savior. We rest in that reality. By faith, we entrust ourselves to the Maker of heaven and earth. But we understand that we are reconciled to God only by the blood. We recognize that, that we are sinners justly condemned. That that by our own works, we cannot establish our righteousness with God. By our own works, rather, we are are justly condemned before Him. By our own works, we are are due the, the punishment for sin. And so it is only in Jesus' name that we can come safely into the presence of a holy God. Remember what the the prophet spoke to the people of God? He said, why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day for you will not be a day of light, but a day of darkness. That will not be a day of salvation for you, but a day of condemnation, because you are still in your sins. And much of the contemporary church has, has forgotten that. They they love to celebrate the power of God. They love to celebrate that God is for them. And if God is for them, who can be against them? But they have forgotten largely that it is only through the blood that they are reconciled to the Father. It is only in Jesus that God is at peace with them. So this is the point that, that Horton is making. He's saying, yes, Christians have worship. They have, they have powerful expressions of worship but they do not always have Jesus at the center of that worship. And it's it's similar with morality. Christians have morality. They may not always live up to it, but but Christians have morality. They they know what's right and what's wrong. They they know the, the law, but again, they fail to see the centrality of Jesus. 
They, they have the law, but, but Jesus isn't in it. For them, the, the law is the means by which they establish their own righteousness with God. It's the, it's the means by which life works. It has pragmatic value. And so again, Horton says, listen, if you, if you listen to the, the preaching and the teaching and, the, and, the, and the, the discussion of the modern church, the modern evangelical church, the, the person and work of Jesus is often missing. Yes, yes, they celebrate the greatness of God for them, and yes, they, they, they celebrate the goodness of the law and how it, it makes life work better. You know, three points for a, for a better marriage or for better kids or for whatever. He says, but they do not have Jesus at the heart of it all. And such Christless religion is not Christianity at all. If you have the worship of the temple, and you have the morality of the law, but you do not have Christ crucified and risen at the center, if he is not the rock upon which you stand, then you do not have the gospel. Without Christ, you do not have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Without Christ, you do not have reconciliation and adoption. Without Christ, you do not have eternal life and an inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. The gospel centers on and is inseparable from the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the propitiation, that, that sacrifice for sins, in whom we are justified by His grace as a gift. And only through that justification do we have peace with God. And only through that justification are we raised to new life, to actually live in accordance with the law. If you try to claim the worship and the morality without Jesus... You get only shadows, for the substance is found in Christ. That's what we need to know, and that's what Stephen needed the Jewish leaders to see. The substance is found in Jesus. And it's why he keeps pressing the point throughout this entire sermon. He, he keeps pressing the, the point in the, the next paragraph when he turns his attention to Joseph. Now again, I've already said that, that, that Stephen makes a similar point about Joseph that he makes about Abraham, right? God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. Now he says that he was with Joseph in Egypt. But, but again, notice, notice how hard he hits the point. He, he says it again and again and again. Some five times he, he mentions Egypt by name. The, the patriarch sold Joseph into Egypt, verse 9. But God rescued him and, and gave him wisdom and favor before Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, and even made him the ruler of Egypt, verse 10. But then there was a famine in Egypt and in Canaan. And so the, Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, verse 12. And all of Jacob eventually went down to live in Egypt and died there, verse 15. Again and again and again, we are reminded that the story of Joseph takes place in Egypt. God is with Joseph in Egypt. And so again, the point is made that God's presence is not limited to the temple. It's not even limited to the land. But that, these things, that these things were promises pointing to a greater fulfillment yet to come. He couldn't hammer the point any harder than he does. But, but there's something new here. He, he's not just making the same point in a new way. There's something new here in his recitation of, of Joseph, because notice what he says at the very beginning. Verse 9. He says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into 
Egypt. The, the patriarchs who had been circumcised. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. And it's the patriarchs' rejection of Joseph because of their jealousy that Stephen wants us to see. Remember the story. Joseph had had two dreams. One showed that he would rule over his his brothers. The other showed that, that not only his brothers, but even his parents would bow down to him. Now, we can debate the, the tone and the motive that Joseph had when he recounted those dreams to his, his family. There are some people who, who portray him as sort of this you know, teenager brat uh, who, is, who is boasting. Others see him more as simply the, the humble instrument of, of God's revelation who cannot but say what God has said to him. It doesn't really matter what tone you hear it with. Either way, the point is God revealed to the patriarchs that he had chosen Joseph to be the ruler of his chosen people. And in that context, the idea of ruling was was inseparable from from provision and from protection. He he is the one who will provide for them. He is the one who will will protect them from the enemy. He is, to use the language that, that Peter used earlier, he is the leader and savior of God's people. He is a picture of the Jesus yet to come. And yet, even though he was God's chosen leader and savior, even though he was the one whom God had had said would rule over the family, would rule over the people of God, the patriarchs rejected him because they were jealous of him. Stephen doesn't say it explicitly at this point, but it's clear enough, is it not? From the beginning, he is saying, God's people have rejected his chosen ones. From the beginning, they have have rejected the ones whom God has given to be leader and savior to his people. And that is exactly what the Jewish leaders are continuing to do now. They are continuing the tradition of the patriarchs, but not in the way that they think. They are continuing the, the tradition of the patriarchs by their faithlessness, not their faithfulness. It is not Stephen who is rejecting God, but it is the council, just as the people of God have always done. This is the point. And, and, and he's, he's going to make this point again and again throughout the rest of the speech. But what I don't want you to miss here is that that missing call to repentance, it's actually implied here, is it not? There's an implied call to repentance here. It's, again, not stated explicitly. It's presented in the form of a history lesson, but there's a call to repentance here because the patriarchs sold Joseph into Egypt, but God saved Joseph and exalted him, making him ruler over Egypt. But the story doesn't stop there. It's not just that God was with Joseph in Egypt. Notice, despite their treachery, God uh, is with Joseph, and Joseph makes himself known to his brothers and brings them to live with him in Egypt. And in the same way, despite the treachery of the Jewish leaders, God saved and exalted Jesus. And Jesus now invites all who will come to him to, to receive an inheritance in his kingdom. And that includes the Jewish leaders. 
He said, if you will repent, if you will receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then you will be saved. That is the promise of the gospel made to everyone, made to every one of us here this morning. Like the patriarchs, we, we are sometimes jealous of God's chosen leader and Savior. We may not use that language, but we, we all know what it is not to want Jesus to be Lord. We all know what it is to want to be Lord of our own life. We, we know what it is not to want to serve Him, but to have Him serve us. We know what it is to, to bristle at the idea that we are justly condemned and, and justly under wrath. We know what it is to, to bristle at the gospel. And yet, Stephen today is, is presenting us with a Jesus who makes himself known to us and who invites us to come and have an inheritance in his kingdom. Receive him as Lord and rest upon him as Savior, and you will not perish, but have eternal life. That is the promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so in him, you get true worship. You don't just get an experience. You get the very presence of God. And he is the fulfillment of the law. So that in him, you, you don't just know what is right, but you are made new. You are renewed that you might begin to walk in it and to, and to enter into the joy of God's salvation. Worship and, and morality and all the rest apart from him are but empty shadows. But the substance is offered to us in the person of Jesus Christ. If we will receive and rest upon him, every spiritual blessing will be ours. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the, the gospel that the council was missing. That's the, the gospel that, that Stephen was, was insistent on proclaiming. Jesus is the yes and amen of all of God's promises. In him and in him alone, every spiritual blessing is made available to the people of God. Any and all who will receive and rest upon him will not perish, but will have life in the coming kingdom. That is the hope of the gospel. That's the gospel that Stephen proclaims as he stands before the council. And that's the gospel that, that is offered to us this morning. And because Jesus makes to us such an offer, even, even to treacherous sinners like us, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your mercy and your grace. We rejoice in the way that you have opened our eyes to see your Son. Father, may we fix our eyes upon him. May, may we not be distracted or, or diverted, but may we rest in him both now and forevermore. And may we in him enjoy all the spiritual blessings of your salvation. We pray this boldly in his name and for his name's sake. Amen.